0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs 17 this morning. Join me again in Proverbs 17. Been here for a couple of classes now at least, two or three maybe. And uh, we're going to talk about poor people in verse 5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker, and he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And uh, there's a lot of that in this world. There always has been. And uh, even back to 2000 B.C., 1000 B.C., when uh, Solomon was writing this, it was common in his day. I think it's always been the case since the fall of man. uh, There's been human beings mocking other human beings for something that they found to be inferior to what they uh, thought they were superior at. So Uh, That's what we deal with here. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His faithfulness to open our eyes to teach us from His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this morning as children of truth. Father, You are the God of truth uh, the spirit of truth lives in each one of us. Father, we, uh, we seem to live in a culture that's adrift, that uh, denies absolute standards of truth. And yet here we are, Father, because we know that uh, our Savior is the way, the truth, and the life. So, Father, we come before you in His name and call upon your faithfulness now to feed us, to teach us, to bless us. We thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we get some, uh some marvelous principles here. We've covered uh, the first four verses. A couple of weeks ago we were wrapping up issues as far as who we listen to and why. Uh, in verse 4 as it says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips, a liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. And uh, why would we say such things? Why would we listen to people who say such things? And uh, important principles there. Uh, we, of course we know that what a person says is a reflection of what's in their heart. Uh, that's a given. But here we learn that what a person listens to is also a reflection of what is in their heart. If I have uh, a slide for that. What a person says, obviously, and we've known that for a long time. Jesus talked about that in uh, Matthew 12 and in Matthew 15, it's not what goes in that defiles a man, but what comes out, uh, because what you say is a reflection of what's in your heart. And, uh, and so we've had those principles, I think, for, for quite some time. Uh, these other verses, though, uh, that, uh, that really describe what we listen to and why we listen to. Why is it that we want to have our ears tickled and accumulate to ourselves, teachers, in accordance with our own lusts? Because uh, that's the carnal mind. That's what unbelievers do. and That's what carnal believers do. And it shouldn't really surprise us. So spent some time on that. Talked about the eye and the ear. Primary entrances to the heart. Really any senses could be. I guess smell, taste, and touch could be as well. But it's just we don't have verses in the scripture that really emphasize those senses as as much as the eye and the ear as far as uh, perverting the heart is concerned. All right. On to point five then. Many of our personal sins have bigger issues underlying them. And When we talk about mocking the poor, okay, that's a sin, yes. But there's a bigger issue that that feeds that. There's a bigger issue underlying that. We want to understand this. Mocking God and defying His purpose. Those are among the bigger issues, and uh, we're going to stress that here today. Remember, God is not mocked, and so uh, when we mock the God who is not mocked, that uh, that gets our attention. And really when He speaks to this, and when He rebukes it in this way and in many other ways through the Scriptures, that does get our attention. So again, to look at verse 5 here in Proverbs 17, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. And there's so much clearly that's wrong with mocking the poor That, uh, in the sense that uh, it's a sin of commission, it's a sin of omission, uh, it's, uh, it, it falls short of the glory of God. If you define sin as falling short of the glory of God, well, mocking the poor falls short of the glory of God. It's also a sin of omission in the sense that we're supposed to love one another. How are you loving your neighbor if, uh, if you're mocking him for being poor? And so uh, really there's, there's a lot of ways we can approach this. Uh, but the way that Solomon approaches it is to say, you know what you're really doing when you're taunting the poor, when you're mocking the poor, what you're really doing is you're mocking God. And, uh, and then, so that becomes a bigger issue. And that becomes uh, something that ought to put fear into us and wake us up and say, ooh, I am mocking God. That's, that's, that's kind of a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> I don't want to be at a point where I'm mocking God because God is not mocked and I will reap what I sow. And that's the, uh, the warning that Paul gives in, uh, in Galatians 6-7 which I think we all know, but we can turn there and remind ourselves as we dealt with this in the uh, Galatians series not that long ago. Um, Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, okay? Which is a phrase you can put in front of every verse in the Bible and it would be applicable. God would not have us to be deceived about anything, okay? but when he says do not be deceived that that highlights i believe it highlights a a realm that satan is very fond of twisting that satan is very fond of of misleading humans about and uh, sowing and reaping is one of those areas do not be deceived god is not mocked god is not mocked ever even when we mock him he's still not mocked <laughs> okay because how do we You know, I mean, He is infinite, He is eternal, He is unchanging, He is glorious, He is altogether uh, amazing. And so we can mock Him in the active voice. Is He ever mocked in the passive voice? Does He ever receive? Is He ever affected by the mocking? Of course not. But God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows this, he will also reap. The idea that we get away with what we think we're getting away with, that God is oblivious to what we're doing, or that we can uh, there's no accountability for our sin, or that <clears throat> somehow we're entitled because God winks at it or he looks the other way that okay, generally speaking, yeah, that's a sin for most people, but you have an entitlement, you're a special case because clearly you've done so much for god you've uh, He owes you right. Um, you've been such a faithful servant for so long and you've stored up so many brownie points. You've really, really, I mean, honestly, the kingdom is going to be such a great place when we get there because of everything you put into it. Uh, obviously then, you know, he can he can look the other way and kind of slide his, his uh, standards of righteousness. You understand how blasphemous this whole attitude is? And yet it's common. That we will make excuses for ourselves, we will accuse and excuse, and we will just we will tolerate certain things because we think well, the good outweighs the bad, so all in all, overall that's not too bad, since it is mostly good, that is horrible, that is just horrible. What I'm describing here it comes down to the really the the fundamental things uh the elementary principles of this world, and the Bible says, no, reject all that, embrace the truth of God's word. So He is not mocked. You're just mocking Him if you think that, uh, that you're going to get away with what you think you're getting away with. No, we will reap what we sow. And that's the principle. And so that comes back here then to Proverbs 17.5. If we're mocking the poor, who we're really mocking is God. And, uh, and so the, the verb to mock and the verb to taunt, they're largely synonymous. They're used in parallelism here. That when you're mocking the poor, what you're really doing is you're taunting God. You're putting God to the test. You're daring God. You know, a double dog dare you, okay, uh, to do something about it because you're mocking the poor and uh, God will not stand for that. Likewise, he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. And there's uh, parallelism there too because it's parallelism between calamity and punishment. And that when God is administering the punishment, why are you rejoicing in that? God takes no pleasure in the, in the punishment He has to inflict. He doesn't get joy in disciplining a child. He gets joy when that disciplined child repents. He gets joy when, uh, when there's repentance and there's restoration to fellowship on the part of the, uh, the object of His discipline. So those purposes become significant as well. Subpoint A. Mocking the poor reflects a maladjusted perspective to God and His grace. Mocking the poor. Why do you think you're not poor? (laughs) And why do you think, uh, you know, I mean you really are poor, you're just richer than the guy you're mocking. Well, why did you select that as the standard for superiority versus inferiority? Mocking the poor reflects a maladjusted perspective to God and His grace. You realize that every time you're mocking somebody, there's somebody else better than you that can be mocking you for exactly the same thing. So whether you're talking about money, you're talking about health, you're talking about uh, how smart you are, or your good looks, or whatever it is that you find that you are very boastful about, you're very proud of whatever. Okay, and so because you're proud of this, and you you have some degree of of something, okay, I, I could uh, I could mock everybody in this room, I could mock everybody in this room for being uh, not as good a Scrabble player as I am, right. And, and, well, but why would I do that? Because there's, you know, hundreds of people that can mock me for, because they're better than me in, uh, in those things. It really is a maladjusted perspective to God and His grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. And whether, whatever my economic status is, that's the grace of God too. And as Paul said, I learned how to get along in humble means. I learned how to live in prosperity. In each and every circumstance, we learn the secret of being content. And so it's not something to brag about. Uh, This is actually not the first time this has come. We had uh, these principles given already back in chapter 14, so I don't really feel terribly obligated to kind of reteach that. I want to get to some bigger issues here this morning, the underlying issues in terms of mocking God. But in Proverbs 14, 21, it says, uh, He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. And so really when it comes down to that, if, if you've got a struggling brother or we got a struggling church member or there's, there's uh, uh, different things there, how do, we, how do we respond to that? Are we going to mock them? Think, wow, you really made a dumb choice. You're going to live with that. Or uh, are we blaming them for being poor? Are we blaming them for or are we mocking them? What are we doing? Are we despising them? If we despise them for their circumstances, even if they are at fault, it's still wrong to despise them. How about we come alongside them in love and, and help teach them to, to make better biblical decisions, to apply the principles of wisdom in, uh, in different things. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 21, 21. Ooh, typo. Um, there's another verse in chapter 21 that uh, addresses this. 31 31 He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker 14:21? 14, 14, and then 14:31. So I realize there's two uh, 21s there on that slide and there should only be a there should only be a 21 and then a 31. Proverbs 14:31. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Honors him. Say, do you want to honor God? Be gracious to the needy. That's honoring to God. How about Psalm 69 9? We quote this a lot, but we quote the first half of this a lot, and we ignore the second half of Psalm 69 9. Why do we ignore the second half of Psalm 69? Well, the first one gets our attention because it gets quoted here with Jesus. Psalm sixty nine eight says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That's common. Joseph experienced that. David experienced that. Jesus experienced that. But then it goes on to say for zeal for your house has consumed me. Remember that? when Jesus is cleansing the temple and flipping over tables and, and uh, He's incensed at the uh, defilement of the temple. But then it goes on to say, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on Me. So in His zeal for His Father's house, what He's saying here, the reproaches of those who reproach you, the taunts of those who taunt you, that there was a crowd of people taunting the Lord and they were taunting the Lord in their money-changing activities. They were taunting the Lord when they were turning His house into a house of merchandise. They were taunting the Lord. And that's what we're dealing with here in Proverbs 17, that when you're mocking the poor. And here they are mocking the poor, using their offerings to enrich themselves. And it's taunting God. And it, uh, it, it, Jesus went berserk, right? It flipped Him out. He was, he was uh, yeah, they, we never seen Jesus so... Uh, incensed as on those two episodes when he uh, cleansed the temple. So we don't want to have a maladjusted perspective to God in His grace. We want to constantly be recognizing the God in His grace, and that if we see somebody of humble means, and if someone is struggling financially, and uh, and and we just we don't get prideful and say, "Wow, glad that's not me." We we are very humbled by the God of grace to say that could be me, and I could be worse than than that, and. Uh, in In the grace of God, we need to identify this. It is a fundamental failure to identify the creature's relative position and placement on a spectrum from the richest to the poorest that we're all creatures we're all finite beings we're all you know we're all poor I don't care if you're bill Gates or, or you know the richest guy in the world or the poorest guy in the world or somewhere in between. We're just human beings on a spectrum somewhere. And uh, that's a spectrum with with rich and poor and and everything in between. And wherever we fit on that spectrum is the grace of God. Because He put us there. And then He may slide us up, or He may slide us down, or He may just slide us all the way to the bottom if He really wants to get our attention. And take us down to to flat broke, take us to to zero. Or less than zero, I guess, with personal debt. And uh, to recognize this. we, We can't Forget who we are, where we are, and why we're dependent upon the grace of God. And this was really a, an emphasis that was made in in uh, to Israel in the Old Testament. It was an emphasis that's made in the New Testament. Let's look at these. These these grab your attention. If you if you lose your perspective, uh, these are some good passages to regain your perspective. How about Deuteronomy fifteen? This was for the nation of Israel, but we can we can still glean a principle out of it. Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 15. Really, what's the the pinnacle of poverty? Slavery. You don't even own yourself. Somebody else owns you. How broke are you when you don't even own yourself? Because somebody else owns you. And in Deuteronomy 15, um, verse 7 says, if there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers... In any of your towns, in your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Remember, they were they lived based on tribes, based on clans, based on families. So their neighbor was actually a kinsman, was, uh, was related to them by blood and marriage. You shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. If you're maladjusted to the grace of God, that's just hardness of heart. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for all his need in whatever he lacks. In whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near. Okay, so here's the thing. So someone, someone could get so destitute that their only way out, do you know what the bankruptcy proceedings were like in, in the ancient world? Slavery, okay? Today we've got, you know, legal... Uh, procedures for different chapter provisions for for bankruptcy in court, and you can file under different provisions and and then um, there are consequences and other things, but in the ancient world, <laughs> it was slavery all right, and they would put you under servitude and, and you would work off those debts, and they would gain a benefit of your of your labor as, uh, as part of their uh, benefit in, as far as bailing out your debts and and other things. But in the seventh year, you, got, you were freed, okay? And now, here's a problem, though. If, if, it's, if you're six years into the seven-year cycle, <laughs> then, uh, you know, there could be a base thought that crosses your mind, saying, well, why am I going to help this guy out? Uh, next year is the, is the year of freedom, and, and uh, yeah, so you could have an issue there. Uh, no, don't have that base thought. Beware that there's no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you and it will be a sin in you because you're mocking God is what you're doing. You shall generously give to him. Your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him for, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work, in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Jesus quoted that, right? The poor you will have with you always. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, to the poor in your land. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. So not only do you cut him loose, look what you load him up with. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. Notice it's yours. You want to be a good liberal? Be a good liberal, but give him your stuff. Don't steal from somebody else and give him somebody else's stuff. That's not a good liberal. A good liberal here says, furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. See, this is what it comes down to. Your grace perspective. Man, the grace of God has blessed you amazingly. And now you get to be the implement for somebody else. You get to be the conduit of grace. for some, What a joy. What an honor. It is more happy to give than to receive and to be the conduit of God's grace. So you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you Therefore I command you this today. What a perspective. And Israel had that. Their national heritage was redemption from slavery. That's what caused them to be a nation. And that was something they would never lose sight of for the whole whole course of Old Testament history. We were slaves in Egypt. And they should have a grace perspective as redeemed people to apply grace and, uh, and have mercy for others. So, Let's recognize this. Wherever we are, (laughs) whatever our position is, our relative position on placement on this financial spectrum, you know, whatever your text bracket is, by the grace of God, that's where you are. And He'll move you up, He'll move you down, He'll put you in different places at different times, but be useful in His hands wherever He places you. How about Matthew 18? Matthew 18, what did Jesus have to say? Verses 21 through 35. Peter wants to know, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus says, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, don't even count. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Remember this story? So there's a slave that owes him this incredible amount, you know, like the gross national product of of your country for the next 30 years. How's he going to pay that? He's never going to pay that. But then he gets forgiven. The slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. So since the grace of God has blessed you, what is your attitude going to be like? What is your attitude going to be like? (laughs) Better not be like this guy who turns and starts choking his fellow slave because of some minuscule amount. So that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's, that's not a not a pittance it's not like it's the widow's mite or something small a denarius was a day's wages uh you know three months salary is is it is it is a debt i mean it is a a thing but compared to 30 billion dollars right i mean compared to the gross national product of, of your country for several years i don't remember the exact scale on this but we taught it and it's in the life of christ series notes And so the fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Nothing like a word-for-word quote to jog your memory (laughs) and to really drive the point home, right? That that stick that knife in real, real sharp, real deep because the Word of God will pierce. Point being, and I think we get this, it's a fundamental failure to identify. We should be we are objects of God's grace. We should be conduits of God's grace. We should have a, a, a perspective of grace and forgiveness. The ones who have been forgiven much should love much. We should be wiping His feet with our tears and our hair and just serving God in, in a marvelous way. We should not be mocking Him. We should not be mocking Him. Understand, the sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God. This is some point B. The sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God selected the temporal circumstances. God's in charge of this. He selected the temporal circumstances for an individual, for a marriage, for a family, community, and nation. Every step of the way, God's in charge of an individual, of a marriage, family, I'm missing a couple of commas there, community, and nation. Sovereign God is in charge of it all. Is there anything that's out of His control? We saw at the end of chapter 16, didn't we, that Proverbs 16, that even flipping coins, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The hairs of your head are numbered. God is in the details. And so your neighbor in his poverty... He's exactly where God has either directed him or permitted him or in the, in the directive will of God, the permissive will of God, the overruling will of God. Whatever uh, whatever's going on there, God's in charge. God's in charge. And so we, uh, we, want to, uh, we want to be oriented to that. We want to have a perspective that, that isn't living in defiance of God's sovereignty, that isn't living in defiance of God's wisdom, that isn't living in defiance of God's perfection. And I think it's useful, too, to stop and ask ourselves, all right, how do I cooperate with what God is doing, say? So, and we'll look at these verses, but the um, recognizing, okay, what is God doing in this poverty? Is Is this part of God's discipline? Is the hand of God's discipline upon this person? Is this person? Uh, is he making poor choices? Is he living a carnal life? Is he not applying wisdom literature? Is he is he uh, under the the discipline of God? Okay, because of whatever. So he's um, he's he's broke. He's, he's a drunk, and he's just drunk everything. And his, he's put his family in the poorhouse, and his wife is affected. His kids are affected. His all this other stuff. So that's that's a terrible circumstance, and the hand of God's discipline is upon him. What then is my responsibility? Should I be, do I need to bail him out of all his sin? Do I need to to try to, do I try to counteract the hand of God? Well, I don't want to do that. No. Okay. So I want to provide assistance in a way that is assistance. I want to provide a way, and it may not be money. In fact, money may be the worst thing. Because he needs to learn what he learns through this poverty. Okay. So how do I come on board? How do I? comfort? How do I encourage? I'm going to comfort and encourage to get right with God, to get in the Word of God, to be growing, to be repentant, to be back on a program. See? All right. So all the circumstances and all the details, God's in charge of all of that. And that's, I think, the bigger picture. That's the bigger picture that underlies this issue here. And so Psalm 139, realize that God's got a plan. Psalm so on one thirty nine. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. <laughs> you know, back when we were just uh, you know male chromosomes and female chromosomes, and and you know when when sperm met egg and we just became a new existence. And uh, before uh, before they were formed, before hands and feet and heartbeat. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. The day of my conception and every day after that. The day of my birth, every day after that. Including this day of poverty. This day of financial shortcoming. This day of financial struggle. This is a part of his plan too. Every day was ordained when as yet there was not one of them. And so, right to, from day one to day last, right to the very end. And so we want to be mindful of the grace of God and the plan of God, the wisdom of God in, uh, in shaping these experiences. Acts thirteen thirty six. Not only are the individual days ordained, the individual days but then all of them combined the aggregate of every day it says for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep was laid among his fathers and underwent decay so there's an aggregate every individual day is ordained in the purposes of God and then the totality of every day he's given you those are all grace days And when those days run their course, the real you, which is not your body, (laughs) okay, you began, of course, as I said, in a a womb somewhere, but then, uh, but all these days are in God's plan. You're not just a body in a womb that goes from the the womb to the tomb. It's not just a body because your soul does not go to the tomb. The soul goes to be face-to-face with Jesus Christ. The soul spirit is the inner man. That's the the real you. And uh, there's a new body on the way. And so the purpose of God in His own generation, God put you here for a reason. And each day along the way is is a part of that process. Not easy to find a course and frustrating when you're young and you don't know what that purpose is yet. I get that. I was there. That's how I ended up in the Army. Because I was arrogant and uh, smarter than anybody I knew. And I had to learn I wasn't so smart and I needed to get humbled. And uh, those angry men in the brown hats that yelled at you all the time, called drill sergeants, they uh marvelous to... Uh, enforce that humility all right so there's a purpose there's a life purpose there's a life purpose there's daily purposes uh, Acts act 17 26 there's national purposes community and national purposes nations also have life spans they go from wombs to tombs all right nations communities So uh, it says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Every nation that's on the face of the earth today and every nation that's ever been on the face of the earth in times past, you know, the Assyrians, uh, the nation isn't around anymore. There's people that claim to be Assyrian descent. The Babylonians aren't a nation anymore. The Cherokee, you know, there's people of Cherokee descent, but the Cherokee nation is no longer a sovereign nation with, with boundaries. They're a subject people. And God's in charge of all of that. Every last one is Adamic. Every one comes from Adam. Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God's in charge of all of that. The grace of God, the sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God is in charge of every last bit of this. Your salvation life Ephesians 2.10 Created unto good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So of all your days, from conception to physical birth, there's a day of your spiritual birth. And in the divine decree, that's part of His plan too. By grace, you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Workmanship. He crafted you. He designed you. And there's no other you like you. There's no, I mean, you are you. Unique in the plan of God. A custom fitted stone to fit in the heavenly temple like no other stone can fit there. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of those good works might be uh, a season of humbling, a season of poverty, a season of adversity whereby your brothers and sisters get to come alongside and, and shine grace upon you. We learn how to get along with humble means and then the shoe goes to the other foot. We learn how to, you know, we learn how to get along in prosperity and we learn how to come alongside our brothers when they are going through their adversity. All of these are the Father's good pleasure to weave these things together Hebrews 12.1 says, we're running with endurance the race that's set before us. We don't pick our own race. We don't choose the course. We don't choose, well, on this day, uh, on this day, I really want my course to include winning the lottery because I look at those numbers on the billboard and they're getting up there. Wow. Those numbers are getting up there. All right. Every drawing, every Tuesday, every Friday. Wait a minute. This is Wednesday morning. Why didn't I win last night? <laughs> well, because we don't pick out our own race. If we did, we'd make a big mess of things in a hurry because we don't have the sovereign wisdom and perfection that God has to chart these things out the way that He does. So mocking the poor is a taunt. We're taunting God. We're we're mocking His perfect plan. We're mocking His wisdom. We're mocking His sovereignty because He put them where He wants them and we're going to mock them for that? How dare we? We're really saying, yeah, God, you're an idiot. Why'd you put him in those poor conditions? And, you know, it's uh, it's something else. It's something else. I try to there's a shock value in this. I try to use this as a shock value sometimes. Particularly when it comes to pastors and churches. When it comes to uh, shepherds in a, in a flock. And um, uh, people that want to grumble, and they want to complain, and they want to they want to uh, criticize uh, whatever. You know, why is the pastor doing this? Or why is this doing that? And disagreeing with whatever and, and uh, criticizing. Uh, I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about other churches and other places. And, and, and why do I want to hear that? What are you telling me about your pastor for? I love your pastor. What are, you, what are you complaining about? But then criticizing what they're doing as if, you know, you could do it better or as if whatever. Okay? Just stop. Slow down. Wait a minute. Why are you lifting your hand against the Lord's anointed anyway? Well, I, I tremble to uh, to do that. But then, you know, think of it this way. If you're mocking Him, you're mocking the Lord, right? You know, because is is Jesus Christ not head of the church? Did Jesus Christ not put that shepherd in that lampstand? So what you're really telling me is that Jesus is stupid. In all this criticism, you're telling me that Jesus is a crummy head of the church. What a blithering idiot. Why did he put that pastor there to do that? When you're complaining about whatever you're complaining about, you're really complaining about God. Jesus is head of the church. Jesus is doing this. He put that man there. Those sheep are allotted to his charge. Don't, uh, don't attack that. Pray for that. Support that. And uh, in all of this other stuff, Jesus is, is directing what, what these men are doing, what these flocks are doing, what these churches are doing. I Love believes all things. I take it by faith that they're humble before the Lord and they're doing what they're called to do. And it's not what I'm called to do. I'm not doing that, but I'm not going to mock them for what they're doing. All right? Anyway. So different things. And, and different men are led to do different things. And, uh, and whatever else. I'm going to try to lead this flock through a Scripture memory program over the summer. And uh, we're going to get some, uh, some books from, from Scripture Memory Fellowship on the book of Colossians. And uh, it's out of print. But uh, talking to Jim Waychuck the other day, they're going to get it back into print. And uh, we're just trying to figure out right now what the, what the budget for that's going to be and what's, the, what's it going to take for them to get it back in print. And, uh, and if we can help them with that, not only does that benefit our flock, it's going to benefit all kinds of people all over the country, all over the world. To have uh, to have that back in print again, the, the Scripture Memory Book on Colossians. So anyway, I pray for that. But could uh, could another church come along and criticize us and say, "What a waste of time! Why are they why is why is the pastor doing this? Why is he taking it?" You know, um, well maybe I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> I just think uh, something I want to do something I think would benefit everyone, and let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Well mocking the poor is a taunt against the sovereign wise and perfect plan of God. Jeremiah nine. Jeremiah nine, verses twenty three and twenty four. Because it's bigger than just a money issue. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindnesses, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So boast in the Lord, boast in these specific things, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. Don't, don't boast in your wealth, don't boast in somebody else's poverty, don't mock them for their poverty as you boast in your wealth. And it could be wisdom, are you smarter than the next guy? Great, don't boast in that either, okay? You're not as smart as you think you are anyway. And uh, your might. You know, yeah, when you're young and healthy and everything, yeah. Well, how long does that last? Okay. Because time catches up to all of us. We're all mortal. We're all getting older. Every one of us in this room has more wrinkles than we did last year. Okay. That's the way it goes. The mighty man boasts of his might. No, but do you know the Lord? Are you walking in the Word of God? Are you fellowshipping? Do you know and understand There's something to boast in. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I like using this one a lot too. Because when you know the Lord, you realize He didn't pick you out because you deserved it. But He couldn't help Himself. Okay? This is why the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And and, um, The weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So all those things you could boast in, you can boast in your wisdom, boast in your might, boast in your wealth. There's not many, okay? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Those are the kind of things the world will brag about, the kind of things the world will spotlight, celebrate. God God doesn't pick you out for those reasons. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. Here you are mocking the poor, despising the poor. And it's the very despised that God has chosen. The base things and despised God has chosen. The things that are not that He might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. When you're mocking the poor, you're mocking God. And it is an insane boast. All right. so by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's our Jeremiah 9 text again. Paul Paul got a lot of mileage out of that text. I'm trying to do the same thing, <laughs> okay? I want us to recognize this because it's by the grace of God we are what we are. And, and uh, the fact that I'm saved is pretty much an indicator of, of what a you know, ridiculous, hopeless, uh, pathetic human being I really am because God chooses the base things to shame the wise. Chapter 4, rhetorical questions here. Because they were all wrapped up in their schisms and their divisions, and some were championing Paul, some were championing Apollos, and uh, who was the better apostle, and clearly, see, if Paul is better than Apollos, then that means that the followers of Paul are better than the followers of Apollos, okay? So if we have a champion apostle, that means we're better than you. Yeah, okay. So these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who, besides yourselves, who regards you as superior? (laughs) Clearly you have this inflated opinion of yourself. Does anybody else share that? Or is that just simply your estimation? What do you have that you did not receive? You know whatever you have, God's grace gave it to you. What do you have that you did not receive? You know, are you you know you're you're smart, you're 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 good looking, you're you're wealthy, you're you know whatever you think you're you're bragging about. How did you get that? Understand the grace of God put you where He's put you. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Like you just created this yourself. Then he goes on and he really, the, the sarcasm lays on thick here in verse 8 and following. He says, you're already filled. <laughs> you've already become rich. Paul's waiting for the kingdom and, and they're already in the kingdom. And He says, you, you've become kings without us. Indeed I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. He says, wow. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to man. They just had it upside down and backwards. And uh, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. And this is more of the sarcasm here. They were so boastful. Said, I'm just a fool. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. Not a sin to be Homeless. We toil, working with our hands. When we revile, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Oh, man, we had fun with this. I miss this. When we taught this in 1 Corinthians, the scum of the world sermons, weren't those great? Scum of the world sermons, the dregs of all things even until now. We need to refresh our thinking on this. We need to go back to that scum of the world mentality that's just humble before the Lord God. That doesn't boast and taunt the poor. That's taunting God. So mocking the poor is a taunt against the sovereign, wise, and perfect plan of God. All right, And as we've just seen, these financial principles apply equally not just the financial spectrum. These financial principles apply equally to our placement on the relative health spectrum, the relative educational spectrum, the relative beauty spectrum, or whatever. Plug any other relative spectrum you want to on there that's in the human experience. We're all on a spectrum, more or less. We're all relative, you know? It's just a relative standard of of creatures comparing themselves to other creatures. And when it comes right down to it, it's all human compared to the incomparable, infinite glory of God. So, uh, yeah. So if you're better, smarter, richer, better looking, taller, whatever, okay, great. But whatever you just described, there's someone better than you. <laughs> okay? somebody better than you. King Saul couldn't handle that and when uh, Samuel came along and said, God's taken the kingdom and given it to someone better than you. And uh, that just filled him with rage. There was a little shepherd boy out there in Bethlehem that was better than Saul. Okay? <laughs> That's another class I want to teach again someday. I had lunch with Pastor Cliff yesterday and he's all excited because they just started a brand new Life of David series at uh, Lost Pines Bible Church. It's going to start. So, Yeah. All excited about that. So, um, maybe it's not wealth. Maybe it's health. Maybe it's prosperity. Maybe whatever it is that, that we, we want to boast about what we think we're better at and somebody else is struggling and so we're going to mock them for it. We're going to taunt, taunt them for it. That's, that's just horrible. And then the second half of the verse, rejoicing in calamity. This carries it a step beyond. Not only do I mock them for being poor, but now I'm actually going to celebrate the tough things they're dealing with because they are poor. We're going we're to rejoice in calamity. That's doubly wrong. And people do this. Nations do this. Matter of fact, this is why we have Obadiah in our Bibles. Because <laughs> Edom was rejoicing at the calamity that had struck Jerusalem. And God says, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know? No. Rejoicing in calamity reflects a maladjusted perspective to God and His judgment. Don't celebrate the judgment of God. God's not celebrating it. God's actually sorrowful that He has to do this. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Do you know how much He endured before He finally lowered the boom? He endured a lot. As he's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and then finally, when he had to afflict it, it brought him no joy. So it's a fundamental failure to identify God's non-rejoicing, non-pleasure, to inflict such calamity. You know what? You know what does please him is when that calamity sparks the repentance. That pleases him. When the when the circumstances uh, are instructive when the lessons are learned that need to be learned, then he can halt the judgment function and he can begin the restoration process and can, uh, can take them to the next stage of where they need to be in his overall plan. So uh, we'll get a couple of principles there out of Ezekiel 18, out of Ezekiel 33, and then we're going to take the time, I, I can rush through, well yeah, I guess can we rush through this in 8 minutes? Maybe. How many times, again and again and again, does God say, Let's turn to Exodus 34 6. What does it say in Exodus 34 6? It's one of the most common phrases you'll ever meet in the Old Testament. So here's this mountain, and Moses is cutting out the two tablets, and he has to make the replacement set of tablets. And then uh, the Lord descends to the cloud and stood there with him and called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. So here he is, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Don't uh, rejoice in calamity. Don't rejoice in it. If if the anger of God has produced some some judgment, then just be fearful. Look to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Um, have a, a, a properly adjusted perspective to God. And his judgments. All right, so Exodus gets quoted in Numbers. It says the same thing again Numbers 14, 18. Numbers 14. Now we got to deal with it in uh, their failure here. In Numbers 13, the spies come back with their report. Uh, there's giants in the land, there's problems, let's go back to Egypt. And what does God say about that? Numbers 14, 18. And so um, he puts them under discipline. They're going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to get to enter into the land. But don't forget now, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people. Moses quotes God's statement when Moses is interceding for the, the, the rebels, for the ones that wanted to fire him and go back to Egypt. And here's Moses praying for him. But he quotes this expression from Exodus 34. It gets quoted again in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9:17. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Nehemiah 9:17. And uh, given a walk-through-the-Bible lesson, our fathers acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandment. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You did not forsake them, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal. See, God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Don't ever forget that. I think this is the uh, if if you remind yourself of this again and again and again and again, it keeps you from having that maladjusted perspective to God and His judgment. And you're not going to celebrate it You're not gonna rub your hands with the glee and rejoice in the calamity and go, "Ha, ha ha, ooh, they're getting what they're getting their whatnot. They're getting their what you know what they had coming to them. Yeah, maybe they are getting what they had coming to them. But understand it was a long time coming. And God, in his long suffering, endured a lot, getting them to that point. And then God finally brings the wrath, and he's taking no pleasure in that. Why are you rubbing your hands with glee and just drooling over this? downfall that you see. Why do you take pleasure in that? Psalm 86.15, Psalm 103.8, Psalm 145.8, Joel 2.13, Jonah 4.2, Nahum 1, three. So what is that? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, nine different passages. I think there's more. God takes the time to repeat Himself nine different times. That I want to pay attention to that. Okay? Because if I ignore that nine different times, what am I really doing? It's a fundamental failure to identify God's non-rejoicing, non-pleasure to inflict such calamity. All right, we'll come back to this next week, and then we'll move on to the fatherhood message in Proverbs 17:6. The dynamic across three generations and uh, the blessings there. All right, remember, we have just this week and next week uh, before we have a two-week break. So, this week and next week, and then uh, no Proverbs, no ladies' prayer, no morning schedule at all on um, the 22nd or the 29th of May. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. I pray that we are mindful of your character. We're mindful of your slow to anger. We're mindful of your, the wisdom of your plan, that you are the all-wise God. And in your wisdom, in Your perfection, in Your sovereignty. You direct the circumstances of what each one of us goes through. And so I pray that we would learn to uh, be fellow workers with You, supporting You in Your plan, supporting You in Your work, and recognizing our functions when it's, uh, when it's our grace blessing to come alongside those in need. I just thank You, Father, and I praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.